Week 14, there's more to it. There's more to it. Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 today. Everybody doing good? Y'all tired? Oh, I heard some yeses. I rebuke you. Today we're beginning Romans chapter 10. Last week, to give you a little bit of an update, we studied Romans chapter 9 talking about the real issues. That people have missed the fact that there is um, a Messiah, Savior, Jesus, and that he has come. And so many are still waiting on a Savior, but we know that there's no more waiting, that he has come, he has done all he needs to do, and we're saved under the blood of Jesus. Amen? People are dying, and they don't even know it, and they get caught up in all these little worries. And even Christians who say they know God, we get caught up in so many petty issues because we don't get involved with the real issues. People are dying. People are lost. People don't know God. And we have to remind ourselves that there's some bigger issues than the ones that we get wrapped up and involved in. That we have to learn that we have to be governed by God, not govern ourselves by our wants and our desires, but by putting ourselves under what he wants for us. We talked about what offends you, petty stuff or real issues. The fact of the matter is that everyone is invited to the table of God. Everyone is invited to take part in eternity with God. There is not some destined for heaven and some destined for hell. Everyone is meant to be with God for all eternity. But he gives you the choice to either walk in eternity with him or reject him and choose your own path. He has predestined all of us for a purpose, but whether you walk in that purpose or not is totally up to you. Amen? So, today with all that in mind, we're going to go into Romans chapter 10. And I want to start in verse 1 because I believe there's just some good stuff in here. Everyone just say it. There's more to it. More to it. Romans 10 verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Now remember, Paul just told us at the end of Romans 9 that people are stumbling over a stumbling block placed in Israel. And we talked about who that stumbling block was. Who remembers who he is? Just say it loud. Jesus. Are y'all tired from the 45-minute decree? Some of y'all may have thought that that was too much, but we covered some ground tonight. Amen. Stumbling block was Jesus. In other words, they tripping over the Messiah. I thought some of y'all got that, but that's okay. I guess I'm just lame. They're, they're literally stumbling over the Messiah because they had an idea of what the Savior was supposed to look like. They had an idea of how he was going to come. They had an idea of what Jesus was going to do. And the way he did it and the way he came was totally opposite. So they didn't like this version that God gave them. So they were tripping. They were stumbling over this idea. This is the Messiah we've been waiting on. 
We wanted this beautiful, magnificent king in robes and, and armor and coming on, you know, horses and, and all and big armies. And, and this dude came and he's he's poor and he's ugly. And did the pastor just call Jesus ugly? Yep, read your scripture. The scripture talks about it. He was not exactly an attractive king like they thought. He was the complete opposite. And Paul says, I I I I I see that the people are rejecting that issue. And he says, I'm not rejoicing at the fact that they're rejecting him. It bothers me. And I want them saved. And it isn't just the longing of his heart. Because a lot of us talk about the longing of our heart. Well, we want people saved. But in the verse, he says, it's the longing of my heart and my prayer. It's the longing of his heart and it's my prayer. Paul didn't just care about it. He prayed about it. And I wonder with all the things that we say bother us, do we follow up what bothers us with an action? Do we actually follow up what we say bothers us by doing something about it? It disturbed Paul that these people rejected the Savior that they've been praying for. And instead of just being mad about it or hurt about it or thinking on it, he said, I'm bothered by it and I pray into it. I'm doing something about it. Are you all talk with no action? And I think that the body of Christ has got to realize we can't just be talking about things that bother us. We've got to do something about it. There's more to it than just being bothered or, or having this idea that we should be doing things. At some point, the church actually has to do something. At some point, we actually have to pray for people we don't like. We can complain about political things. We can complain about where the country's going, or we can do something about it. And doing something about it doesn't look like disrespect and dishonor. Doing something about it looks like one thing. I want people to see Jesus right here, right now, in something more than a picture we put up in churches. I want people to see him through me and what I'm doing, the character that I'm doing with, and the way I'm presenting it. I want people with all they see is to see Jesus working through me. I don't want to do something about it for my glory. I don't want to do something about it so people can give me praise. I want to do something about it and that everything I'm doing points to the one that they've missed. In James chapter 2, it says this. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, verse 14, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? And we're laughing about it, but we do that junk all the time. You know, like you pass the beggar on the road and say, Lord, please provide for him. But you don't do what? Because you place a judgment on what they're doing, right? 
Y'all know what I'm talking about. I've done it. The pastor, the man of God, I've done it. You're driving and you're seeing those people that, that they don't have clothes but that are like ours. They're dirty. They're filthy. They got the sign that says, I've got three kids, four dogs, no cars. And I'm Y'all know the stuff. And then you automatically start passing judgment. Well, if they can get out here and beg for money, they can go fill out a job application. And where that may be valid, we have to understand also that Jesus met you exactly where you were even though you've heard about him all the time. At some point, we've got to get outside the, I'm passing judgment and all this stuff, and actually show that we care. So you see, verse 17, faith by itself is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, your faith is dead and useless. And there's so many people in the, and I'm just using that as an example, but there's so many people in the church who say we have faith in Jesus, but we don't do a dang thing with our faith. We think that the doing of our faith is let's come to church. We think that the doing of our faith is let me get involved in a Bible study somewhere. No, the doing of your faith is being equipped in the house to go out and do what God puts on your heart that you have got attention to it, you're pulled to it, and you're equipped here to do something about what's pulling on your heart. You see, that's where the role of the church has got to be reversed. It's not you come here to feel better about how crappy your life is because y'all know that's what church has become. Are y'all awake? Y'all know that's what church has become for a lot of people. Let me escape my reality for an hour and a half and give God praise and let me get a sermon just so I can go back out to my car and immediately feel like crap. No, no. What this is meant to do is be the equipping for you to go and do something about what God is putting on your heart. To go do something about what's bothering you. There's more to it than just that something bothers you. You need to be equipped to put your hand to the thing that is speaking to you. There is no point of having faith without follow-up. And Paul is following up. It's not that it just hurts my heart and I have faith that God is good. He says, I am following it up with the action of I pray. I take the time out of my day to pray for people I know and pray for people I don't know instead of just bringing my stuff before God. We have to remember that prayer time is not just a time for you to say, God, I need, God, I need, God, I need, God, help me, God, help me. I'm going through this, I'm going through that, I'm going through this, God, help me, God, help me. At some point in your prayer, it needs to become less about you and more about what God has placed on you as his assignment on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, what do you want me to represent you in my work? How, how do you want me to represent you? Who do you want me to speak to? Who do you want me to bless? Even if it means sacrificing my own blessing. Lord, it's, there's more to it than just me, 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 me. And the church in America has become all about me, 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 me. I remember... Jackie Tyre said something that really, really hit me in the message when she was talking about, look at most of our praise songs. Me, 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 me.
me. Ah, 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 ah. And we have lost the, 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 the truth that we are a body of believers and we're never meant to do ah, 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 ah. We're meant to be we, 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 we. All the way home. <laughs> that was so lame. I, I know, I didn't even, I, that's not even in my, I didn't plan that. That was horrible. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. Share, someone shout share, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Well, I've got a busy schedule today. You are not. That important. I don't have time to go deal with their stuff because I've got to deal with my stuff. Not understanding if you really believe that God has got your back, if he puts something in your sight to deal with, do you have the faith that in putting action to that, that God is going to take care of the thing that you thought you were good enough to handle all alone? Because we say we have faith, but when God says, shh, steer your attention here, we don't go there because we're worried about what we got to take care of. Instead of realizing God says, listen, if you will just follow me in all my ways, and sometimes it's at your inconvenience, I'll take care of the thing that you were probably going to mess up on your own accord anyways. Right? What do you really care about? It's going to be revealed in your actions in your prayer life. You want to know how we know that Paul actually cared about these people? Because he sacrificed his time to pray for them, to pray about them, to ask God what they needed. Paul was a servant. Jesus was a servant. And how dare we think that we can posture ourselves as anything but servants. Don't tell me you care about me when you never pray for me. Don't tell me you care about an issue, but you never pray about it. Don't tell me something breaks your heart and you do nothing about the thing breaking your heart. But that's our rhetoric. I just, I feel sorry for these people and, and I feel sorry that this is going on. Well, if you truly feel sorry, what are you doing about it? You ever notice that certain things bother some people and not others? Don't you think there's a reason behind that? Don't you think there's a reason something is pulling on you but not pulling on me? There are certain things that people are passionate about that I just don't get passionate about. If we can just get real. This is going to sound bad. But we served at the, the, the homeless ministry for she said, I knew he was about to say this, for almost seven years, six years really, and I could not stand going there every Sunday. I didn't like going to serve them food. I didn't like going to help them get clothes that they were just going to mess up to get more the next week. I didn't like preaching to them because half of them are drunk and high. I don't know what I'm saying anyways. Of course, there were some that did, hallelujah. But that was just my mindset. I didn't like doing it. I wasn't 
really moved by their issue. But I was moved by some issues that other people weren't moved by. I was moved by the issue that we got a people that come to church that don't even know how to talk about Christ in the world. And I wanted to devote, to devote all of my energy and how do I equip people to take his name wherever they go. I got pumped about if you care about the homeless, let me equip you to go handle the issue. Right? We all get different things that pull on us. There's a reason. God is highlighting that to you. And instead of you complaining, well, why don't the church do this? And why don't Christians do that? Why don't you? There's a reason, a reason it's being highlighted to you. The Lord is showing you something to put your hand to. Paul says, Israel is not saved and it bothers me, so I'm going to devote myself to sharing truth to the people. Romans chapter 10 verse 2. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. Paul says, I know they have a passion for God, but they don't know what they're doing or who he is. Their passion is misdirected. You see, Paul had a passion for God before he came to know God because he thought 100% that God wanted him to kill Jesus believers. And he justified it as a higher calling from God. But we know that the God he was talking to wasn't the true God. Because the Father would have not told him to go kill Christ followers. But there are so many people that justify things and they say, God told me, and by what you're doing, I can tell you, you ain't hearing from my God. Right? They have zeal that's misdirected. People have a craving for some sort of God. But it's often misdirected. People crave God, so they replace him with Buddha. Mother Nature. Nature itself. Money. They put all these things as the thing that they want to guide them and direct them. And many Christians are even in this place. They have a passion for Jesus, but they don't know him. So they carry his name and they look and talk and act nothing like him. Misdirected zeal. I love Jesus, but nothing about your life looks like you love him. It's misdirected. I don't care how much you can say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If your life don't look like it, I can tell you that your zeal is very misdirected. Because if you're truly passionate about who he is, you'll start to look like who he is because you're not just believing that he's real. You're putting an action in your life in line with the passion you have for him. It's not just I believe in God. It's I believe in God and I want him to change the way I think, 
to change what I'm passionate about. I want my thoughts to become his thoughts. I want his thoughts to become my thoughts. I want his desires to become my desires. I don't want to change because I think I'm necessarily horrible. I want to change because I want to look like the God I claim I believe in. Where many go astray is they have passion without knowledge. What does passion without knowledge lead to? Songs that sound good with no power. Let me give you an example. There's an old hymn that people sing all the time. Now, not all hymns are bad. Don't hear me out. But, we, but I remember growing up, someone looking at me like I'm about to. I grew up singing a hymn in church. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. You ain't going to fly nowhere. <laughs> and why are you praising God that you're going to die when you claim that you're going to live eternally? Think about it. When I die, I don't know about you, but I ain't going to die. And I'm not waiting to get to heaven. I am asking God, how do I get heaven here? But when we don't have knowledge of truth, we'll get behind any song, any sermon, any movement, Any movement, there's a movement every other day in America right now. And when it speaks to something that is personal to you, we get behind the movement. But we never have any knowledge of where it came from, what's the root of it, and we get behind it, and we don't realize that we're giving honor to something that God never intended for us to walk with. Evangelism. When we don't have knowledge, passion for evangelism does more harm than good. Because you have this passion, let me go get people saved, and you're never equipped. You don't have knowledge of how to do it. So you go out and you do a sinner's prayer, and you say you get a card. Hey, wow. Hey, you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. You better believe in Jesus. Do you want to believe? And they're like, yeah, just leave me alone. And you've actually done more harm than good because you don't know what the heck you're talking about. You just have a zeal and a passion that's completely misdirected because you don't really care about their salvation. You just want to get a good record of how many people you got saved. Is, is, is this... You've got passion, but knowledge not accompanied with it. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot of churches like that. Look at verse 3. They don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep law. You can know all the stuff and do all the stuff, but it's nothing without submission and relationship. Because we think as long as I go to church, I'll be good. 
But if you're not submitting in areas, church ain't going to do nothing for you. We're called to a life of radical submission. You, 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 you can tithe. You can have a perfect attendance record. You can sing the songs. But it ain't going to do a thing for you if there's not some sort of submission in your life to the Almighty. And I don't know about you, but I have seen so many people claim God and look, and look nothing like him. And they think just because they claim him, they're good to go. No sir and no ma'am. If you don't look like God, it's because you really don't know him. You like the idea of it, and you like the social thing it puts you in. But you don't know him. When you know somebody, you do life with them. You have a relationship with them. And you become the circle you keep. If all I did growing up was hang out with drug addicts, most likely I'd become a drug addict. When you hang around true followers of Christ, most likely you're going to start to get a zeal and a passion to follow. You become the company you keep. Likewise, if you truly love God and you keep company with him in relationship, you'll start to look more like him. And there is a way that you can tell if people are looking like him by relationship or not. When you get in a situation and you respond to something, you're going to hear a godly response or a fleshly one. Your natural will tell everything about you. There are certain things that my natural ain't Christ-like. There are other things that my natural does look like Christ. And we don't want to address those things, but the fact of the matter is, if we start to understand what comes out of us shows us a lot about who we are, we can, we can see an area of your life that you are not submitted to. If you panic in fear all the time and God says, I have not given you a spirit of fear, you've got to realize that is an area of your life that you have not given completely to the Almighty. And people justify fear all the time. If you worry at every situation, a part of your life has not been submitted to him. Because if you're truly submitted to the one who is stronger and almighty and the one who is the wonderful counselor and knows all things, what you worrying about? Because we have a passion for who he is, but do we know? Do we have a relationship with? Is this okay? Israel was justifying a lack of knowledge with the knowledge of what they had. They had law, but they didn't know God. How can you say that, Kyle? John 14, 9 says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when they looked at Jesus and said, he ain't God, guess what? Who they didn't know. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And all of you in the church who are claiming you know God, you obviously don't know him. Because if you see me, 
You've seen him. There should have been something about Jesus that resonated with people who truly knew the Lord. Maybe that's why some of the disciples, it didn't take long for them to say, well, you're the Messiah. Because they weren't in the religious systems. They had a relationship with God, and they identified who the Messiah was because if you've seen him, you saw the one that you claim you've had conversations with. When people look at you, when people talk to you, do they see the Father? Or do they see something else? Well, that's a little too harsh. Well, I'm giving you keys of how to submit more. Because there are certain ways you handle things that they see God-like character. There are other things they see that is far from him. Instead of taking that as a, oh, that beats me up, I can't get this in line. No, understand, this is an area that I have not fully submitted to. Thank you, Lord, for revealing this to me so I can put it under your feet. They knew the Father's law, but they didn't know him. So they didn't get obsessed with the relationship. They got obsessed with check marks. Let's pray at these certain times. Let's wear this type of attire. Let's do all these things. And when Jesus came, no matter how perfect they had the law, they didn't know who the heck he was. And many know all the stuff, but they don't know the author. Because there's more to it than just getting it all right. There's more to it than just saying you know him. In verse 4 it says, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. The law has a purpose. Bring us to a place of being right before God so that we can have a relationship. And in order to be right, to be right by law, you had to be obedient to every single part of it. Well, I don't know about you, but I am not obedient to every single part of the law. I would love to be, but I get it wrong. When I get cut off in traffic, I don't say bless you. I don't, I don't know what y'all thinking, but. But what Christ did is he accomplished the purpose of I will pay the debt as a perfect sacrifice so that you're made right forever even when you get the law wrong. You no longer have to do everything to be made right. You're made right in me. So live in relationship with me so that your life will start to look like what the law showed you as perfection. Stop focusing on getting everything right. Focus on getting to know me and submitting to me and honoring me in all parts of you. Because when you have a relationship with me, the parts of you that are not correct will get correct by way of surrendering in a relationship. Does this make sense? Verse 5. Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, 
Don't say in your heart, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth? And don't say, who will go to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again? That's a weird couple of verses. Let's read those again. Verse, verse, uh, verse 6. Faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth. Don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life. In fact, it says, verse 8, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. That message is the very message about faith that we preach. Faith's way of being made right. You don't have to go to heaven to get Christ, and you don't have to go hell to hell to get him out. He came down for you. He went down for you. He rose up for you. He went to heaven for you. He's interceding on your behalf at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back for you to bring you back into a perfect earth. We don't have to go into great lengths to achieve right standing. Jesus did all of it. You ain't got to go get him from heaven to get things right. He says, I made you right. You ain't got to figure out how to get in heavenly realms to get me. I have made a way for my spirit, the spirit of God, to get in you so that you could bring heaven here not try to find a place called heaven. Let me tell you why I'm saying that. I think a big issue in the church, and I say this not in particular churches in the area, I'm I'm, let's talk about us, is we think we have got to get to a place that hosts the presence of God so that we can get a piece of it and bring it back. So there's a culture that's been created in church. Whenever we see a great manifestation of God, there's nothing wrong with going to those things. But the mindset of let me get a piece to bring it is you don't understand something. The same presence that is being hosted in those places is living right inside of you. And it's not let's go get something and bring it back. It's realize something is in you that needs to be released fully. And if we would start getting obsessed with let's come together and allow God to do what he wants to out of a place of I am submitted to him, that's where revival starts to spark. What is revival? It's not an event. Revival is not this thing where, oh, God's showing up at this specific place for a little bit of amount of time. Revival is let, we are seeking God to the point that the dead parts of us that we claim are alive are getting revived so that in revival, God is getting everything. He's getting our time. He's getting our resources. He's getting our passions. That all of a sudden in the corporate awakening, something starts to happen where we never get tired of being in the two or more presence of God. Where we, we, we joke around about it, but like we don't get tired of decreeing prayers. We don't get tired of being down in our face or on our knees. We don't get tired of worshiping. 
A part of us that needs to be revived in revival fire is that you are so consumed with God that we don't get tired of singing. Angels don't. They sing the same thing over and over and over and over. And they've, done, they've done it from the beginning of time and they'll continue to do it. Who knows what they're singing? Holy, holy, holy. And we do four songs with a lot more words than holy and people getting tired by song two. Because something in us needs to be revived that, oh, I never want to leave giving praise to the God that I actually believe in. I don't even know where I'm at. The message of faith that is on your lips and in your heart. The message of faith it's in your heart and it's on your lips. Luke 6.45 A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you, what you say flows from what's in your heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell where you're at in God by what comes out of your lips. Oh, wait a minute, Kyle. I love God, but I know some things I said last week. Are you telling me that I don't have God in my life? No. I'm telling you, you got more of your life that needs to be surrendered to relationship. Because the more we're submitted to relationship, the less evil stuff would, stuff would pop out. Well, you can't say that. You don't know me. I don't need to know you. I heard what came out your mouth. Well, that's not me. Actually, according to Scripture, it is. And we can get scared of that or we can praise God for saying, thank you for giving me such an easy way to identify what is not submitted. If the first thing you want to do is, I'm going to pay them back, there's a lot of you that ain't surrendered. If the first thing you do when someone stabs you in the back is curse them, there's a lot of you that ain't surrendered. Because God-like character is turning the other cheek. God-like character is pray for those who persecute you. And I'm there. There's people who say things about me where the last thing I do is pray for them. That's not good. I may have been guilty of that today. When you find out people saying things about you, and then you, you go, you know, by yourself and uh, son of a, yep, y'all know what I'm talking about. But then, wait a minute, something was just revealed. If that was so quick to come out of my lips, Lord, what else of me have I not given unto you? See, we can look at that as a scary, judgmental, oh, I got it wrong, God hates me. No, no, no. Law does not get you right. 
It's not about, oh, I missed it, God's mad, am I saved, am I a Christian? No, get that out your mind. That's law. You ain't going to get it perfect. What it is, something has been revealed that a part of me is still not fully submitted. And the way I get it submitted is go deeper in relationship and fall in love with the one who first loved me. You can tell all day long you know Jesus by what you say in a situation. And we're no longer in a place where what is revealed separates. Nothing is more powerful than the price Jesus paid. Essentially what Paul is teaching, people of God, why do you say you know this, but you preach a gospel that says clean up so that you can get in? Isn't that what the church does? We see someone messed up and dirty and not of God. So what we do is we say, well, get your stuff together and come to church. Or on the opposite side of things, we say we find someone that's not of God or we find someone in trouble and we say, you need to come to Relentless on Saturday night so you can hear a word from my pastor. No. You got lips. When you see someone dirty, don't bring them here to get cleaned up. Do some cleaning. Well, how do I clean them up? Show them that there's a God who loves them even in their dirtiness, and they don't have to get cleaned up to go into his presence. If they will go into his presence and they will start building a relationship with the one who loves them, their dirty parts will start to look like white as snow. Because their dirtiness will be covered in the blood. But what does the church do? We got to get them in the house to get them right. No. The point of this house is to teach each other as a family of God, the more we surrender ourselves to relationship, that when we're in a situation, a natural thing is going to flow out of our lips from a transformed heart. And it's going to be exactly what that person needs because he placed you there, not me. There are so many spheres of influence in this room. The goal of church is not for you to get all the messed up people you know in church. The goal of church is to equip you to minister to messed up people and wherever they're meant to be, they'll find that place. Not everyone is going to connect in this house. And that does not make them less spiritual. Maybe some. It's, I don't care about what house you go to. I care about who you know and who you're submitted with. Don't tell me you love God, but you're scared to talk about him. And don't talk about him in passion without knowledge. And you know where knowledge comes from? Relationship. 
Don't tell me you love God and then you found someone on the street and you didn't have the courage to go talk to him. I know you love God, but do you have a relationship with the one that you claim you love? Because out of that relationship, he's going to start speaking to you about what to do in the moment. You don't have to be trained as an evangelist to evangelize. You just got to know the voice of the one you claim you love. It doesn't need to make sense to you. It doesn't need to make sense that someone came to Jesus because you bought them a tank of gas. It doesn't need to make sense that someone came to Jesus just because you went to them because you had this thing in the back of your head or in your heart that said, just ask them why they're so down even though they look happy. Because they'll start to say things like, how did you know? I had a, um, one of my spiritual fathers told me this week, he was at this banquet and he was, uh, th this woman was giving this presentation. I forget what she did, but she, she was just talking about all this business stuff. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit told him that she was meant to be a preacher. No, no, no knowledge of that at all. So he's got a choice. Do I submit to what the Holy Spirit's saying and risk looking like a complete idiot? Or do I protect my reputation and not do a thing? You know what he did? He goes up to the woman after the banquet and says, so when did you stop preaching? And the lady started breaking down in tears because she said, I've never told anyone this, but when I started college I was going to become a preacher but it was getting too hard so I decided to go into a different business because it would be easier and more secure financially and she never became a preacher she said how did you know that I was meant to preach because I've never told a soul about it how do you know Holy Spirit and the woman went to the bathroom and cried, and I'm sure God was dealing with her. It didn't make sense to him why in a business meeting he heard she's a preacher when nothing about what she was saying was God like her church. But do you lean on your understanding or his when the scripture says, do not lean on your own understanding? I wonder how many opportunities we're robbed of because we simply want to understand it instead of walking in faith and not by sight. And we don't know how to walk by faith because where we might be passionate about God, do we truly have a deep relationship with him? And if you have an issue with trusting a God that you can't see, praise God that he just revealed an area that you have not been submitted in. You see, there's a lot more to it than what meets the eye. There's a lot more to it than just God, just make this easy. You actually have to understand his voice. Well, how do I know God's voice? Well, you got to start taking some time with some things that you claim you care about. You care about him? Start talking to him. Well, he don't talk to me. Keep talking. Well, I can't hear him. Well, maybe you should shut up and try. Well, I don't know what his voice sounds like. Do you really think God is so small that his voice only sounds like one thing? 
He wants to speak to you specifically, and I can't teach you how his voice sounds to you. And I can preach all day and tell you about all this knowledge and tell you about what the Bible says and all this, but with no relationship, when you say the exact same thing, it's going to sound like a bunch of foolish talk because it only becomes real when you actually know the person you're talking about. And if the message of faith that should be rising out of our lips, it should come from a heart in relationship with him. In verse 9 it says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. If you openly declare with your lips and believe in your heart. Nothing is made right by doing all the stuff. There's more to it. you got to openly declare, confess with your mouth, and when you declare or confess, you are coming into agreement with what God says about Jesus and what Jesus said about himself and everything. It's not confess or believe, it's both. Belief is empty without confession. Confession is empty without belief. And you know what someone truly believes by what comes out their mouth. By what they're confessing. By what they're declaring. Someone can say they believe that God will come through. But if all you hear is about, I can't do it, and I'm tired of this, and I don't want it, do they actually believe? Because that's not what they're confessing. And on the other end, you can confess you say all this, but by your actions, it seems like you believe something completely different. Because we can confess the 45-minute prayer. I declare that, you know, this won't reign over me, that idolatry won't reign over me, that this won't reign over me. But if you go home and stuff is reigning over you, you didn't believe what you declared. Because the enemy has no power. None. And we're saying amen, but I guarantee you I'll get a phone call this week from someone that says, the enemy's on me. You just said that you believed that he's got no power. What's the issue? Well, I just didn't expect him. I don't care what you expected. He's got no power. He's got no authority. He can't do anything. He's the author of confusion. But we blame the devil for stuff all the time. Well, let me remind you something. He can't do anything. Well, the enemy did it. No, he didn't. He started speaking to some minds and speaking to some hearts, and the ones that can do it came into agreement with one that can only suggest it. 
Yeah. You want to preach? <laughs> this is good. We're getting it. Take every thought captive. Why? It's the only way he can get in. If stuff's coming out your mouth that's not in line with God, it's time for surrendering. See, when it says confess and declare that Jesus is Lord, that word Lord, it comes from this word curios, which means ranking someone as an emperor or a godlike status. Giving someone a supreme place in your life. And when that thing is given supreme status, that means obedience and worship. God wants supreme status in every area. The question in this passage is, do you believe what you're declaring? Do you actually believe that you want God Lord over every area? You confess him as Lord, but is he Lord? You confess him as the supreme ruler in your life, but is he actually ruling your life? In verse 11, it says, as the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll never let you down. He gives generously to all who call on him, and what he gives is everlasting, and you will be saved. But there's more to it. Look at verse 14. How can they call on him to save them unless they actually believe in him? Is this okay? How can they believe in him if they never heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? It's sad that that's revelation for some of us. Think about what it says. How can they believe if they've never heard? How, they, how can they hear if no one says anything? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. It's great and wonderful that the Lord gives and all we got to do is call on his name. But how can they do that if no one's talking about him? And no one can go and tell if they're not being sent to go and tell. And you're not going to know what God is sending you to do if you don't talk to the one that you claim to believe in. Why isn't Savannah transforming? Because they can't respond to God because no one's telling them about God. And the reason no one is telling them because they're not getting the sending instructions. In other words, you want to know why the city ain't transforming? Because no one's asking God for their flipping assignments. How can they know if they didn't hear? Well, they didn't hear because no one said. And you ain't saying because you didn't get the assignment to go. 
And the reason he didn't get the assignment isn't because God says you're not worthy. No, he made you worthy. The reason you didn't get the assignment because you have no relationship with the assignment giver. Every one of you have an assignment. But we give more glory to Monday work day and hump day trying to get through the week than understanding you've got an assignment every day. And no one's hearing from God because you're not going forth in what he's called you to do because you didn't take the time to say, Lord, what is my assignment? What do you want from me? And if he told you, you couldn't hear his voice because you only talk to him when it's convenient. You only talk to him when you need money, when you need a breakthrough. What happened to just saying, God, I love you? God, you're worthy. God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Lord, what more do you want of me? Why does Paul start this whole chapter off telling us that he prays for those he wants to be saved? He knows something. He says, I won't know where I'm sent to if I don't talk to God about who I have a heart for. He starts the whole passage off by saying, I'm praying for these lost people. Why is he praying? Why is he talking to God about what moves him so he knows where he's supposed to go and what he's supposed to say? It got him into a lot of messed up predicaments. And you have to be ready to go there too. When was the last time you just, God, what, what would you have of me? What do you want me to do? See, there's more to it than just believing in Jesus. It's, he's the Lord over my life. So Lord, give me instructions for my life. And being sent by God does not always mean success. Verse 16. Not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. Just because they hear truth don't mean they'll welcome truth. And that doesn't mean they were never destined for God. It simply means some receive him and some decide not to. And many people who were sent or called to do something, they question their call because they measure the results. Well, no one's listening to me, so I must not be called to it. What if your assignment was just to tell so that what you said is confirmed in someone else a year later, then you'll never know. But you're measuring your results because you want, you want the glory. You don't want God to get the glory. You want the, look at what I did. I got someone saved. I ministered to someone. I, 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 I. No, 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 no. Just what's the assignment? I don't, I, just what's the assignment? Not everyone is going to welcome what you have to say. But you have to be in such relationship with the assignment giver 
that a lack of results does not move you from carrying out the assignment. Look at Luke 11.35. Because we got to talk about what we're saying to people when we're giving the assignment. Is this making sense? Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you're filled with light with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. Light means knowledge. Darkness means ignorance. It says, make sure that the knowledge you think you have is actually knowledge. And the only way to do that is relationship. You see, there's more to it. Relationship isn't just about you. It's also about what comes out of you. Because a lot of us think we have knowledge. But what comes out doesn't point people to Jesus. Or a lot of us think we have knowledge. But it's actually the enemy's suggestions to make you think what you know is God-like. Think about what the enemy said to Eve. The fruit ain't going to kill you. Well, he was right in the flesh. Didn't kill the flesh. But he knew what he was doing. At that moment, their spirit died. And they had to be reborn later. That's the curse and the fall of man. And the enemy loves to make you, Christians, this is how the enemy works. He wants to make you think what you're saying is of God. And that's why we have 400 different theologies that all say there's one way, one truth, and one life. You know, I hear people talk to me all the time about how, well, that's a primary issue, and that's a secondary issue, and that doesn't matter. And that if it's one truth, it's all an issue. Maybe I'm stupid and dumb, and I'm cool with that, but I, why are you laughing? But, Apparently someone is in agreement. But I actually believe that there is one truth and we can find it. Just, Lord, you show me. Lord, you tell me. Three more verses and we're done. Verse 18, but I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. See, when Paul says to all the world, he's actually talking about to the world he knows. He's referring to the Roman Empire and the Jewish people and the Gentiles to the known world of Israel. Why is he pointing this out? You are held accountable to what you've heard and what you reject. It's not our job to convince. It's our calling to tell. And there's a lot of people in this room and in the church at large who have heard truth and we're held accountable to the truth that we've rejected. And we've all got truth that we've rejected. Well, how do I know what I've rejected? It comes out your lips. Verse 19. I asked, did the people of Israel really understand? Yeah, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I'll provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. God told the people he will bring others to him. And yet they still got mad when Gentiles said they knew God. 
Verse 20. Later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I will stand by people who are not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. Israel rejected their own Messiah who they were praying for, and the people not of that nation began to find him even though they weren't seeking him. I'd get mad too. Because they had more of a relationship with their doing than the Father. Well, we did this, and we deserve this, and we've been praying, and we've been doing... Why are those people getting it? And we do that in the church. Well, I've got this relationship with God, and I've given my life to him, and look at where I am, and look at where they're at, and then they're getting blessed, and they don't even deserve blessing. You, neither do you. No one deserves it. You want to know an issue with your lips right there? Praise God that he decided they needed that. Not rebuke God because you didn't get what you're envious of. You know what envy is? Thinking that God has a limited supply because they got something and you can't get that. Let me say that again. Envy is thinking that God's got a limited supply. Because you want what they got instead of understanding that God can give you whatever you need. He has an endless supply. But what does he supply you with? What you need to carry out the specific assignment he's placed on your life. And you don't need what everyone else has. And you don't know what you need because you don't talk with the one who provides. In verse 21. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long, I opened my arms to them. But they were disobedient and rebellious. Now, we're going to get into this next week. But the thing I wanted to point out tonight, I opened my arms to all of them. His arms are open to all, not just some. But how are we responding? Where's your relationship with him? How often do you talk to him? What are you doing as a response of being in love with him? Do you ask for your assignments? See, there's more to it than just believing. God, what, what is my part in this? Don't think that you're too good to rob God's purpose from you. Well, you don't know how my life's been. But he does, and the purpose hasn't changed. But are you humble enough to get in a relationship with him so that he can start to reveal the purpose that you think you've been robbed of? His arms are open to you. There's more to it than just, I believe in God. There's a conversation. There's a day-to-day -day walk. When we start to understand there's more than just believing, perhaps we will see God do more and pour out more. Because we all kind of say the same thing sometimes. God do it. God pour it out. And I, I truly believe that God's response is, I've been wanting to. But I'm going to do it through those who are asking me how I'm going to pour it out through them. 
You see, many people in my position will get discouraged with a smaller group of people. It's, you know, every pastor does it. Like, right, like I, I ain't gonna lie, I thought about it. You know, before summer, we were doing Saturdays and Sundays, and the, we decided just to do Saturdays, and the first Saturdays, there was tons of people, and now there's tons of chairs. And in my flesh, it's like, well, where's all the people? Like, do we, do we get it wrong? And, and then we have to understand God's like, didn't I tell you to do this? God actually does know what he's doing. But do you believe it? It was a small group of people that sought him when he poured himself out. So why are we obsessed that the only way God can do it is with tongues? This area needs a revealing of who he is. And all it needs is two or three to agree. So why not embrace God, even if it's just with this few, in a deeper way that you have never gone to before in your life? Maybe go home at night and say, Lord, I know there's more to it. I, in this message tonight, I know I say this. I know I respond like this. Lord, I want to die to that and come alive in you. When we start to do that, I believe when we put action to that and really start to dive into who he is, we're going to see things that's going to make revivals of old look elementary. Because God doesn't want to do something that's already been done again. He wants to do a new thing. And you know how you find a new thing? You got to seek it and not try to replicate something that's already been done. There's more to it. So let's seek him more intentional than ever before. Amen?